sermon this morning is Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Uh, we are uh, beginning a series through this book, and uh, as we do that, it will be helpful for us to keep the big picture of this book in mind. Um, and we consider that this morning. The main theme of the book of Joshua is God's faithfulness to his promises. It's the fact that God keeps his word. Uh, centuries before the book of Joshua was written, uh, God gave his people some very specific promises. And the focus of the book of Joshua is on one of those promises, namely the land of Canaan. Uh, God promised that he would give them a place, that he would give them a land, he would give them a home. And, you know, there were times during those centuries after God gave his promise to Abraham up until it was fulfilled, as we'll read in the book of Joshua, there was times during those centuries where it seemed as though God had failed to fulfill his promise, um, especially when Egypt, uh, Israel was in slavery in Egypt during those uh, many centuries. Had God failed in his promise? Uh, had God not kept his word? The book of Joshua records the fact that, no, God kept his promise. He fulfilled his word. The key verse in Joshua is found in chapter 21, verse 45, that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Everything God had spoken came true. So with that, let us now read our sermon text from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As we begin looking at this text, notice first that God 
assures us of his faithfulness. God assures us of his faithfulness. And we see this highlighted in the opening verse, which tells us that Moses is dead. Now, uh, that might not seem like a big deal to us, uh, but for Israel, at this moment in redemptive history, uh, it was a very difficult time. Um, we read, in fact, at the end of Deuteronomy, the book just before Joshua, that when Moses died, uh, God buried him, and Israel wept and mourned for Moses for 30 days. 30 days. You can imagine how broken their hearts were over Moses' death. Why such a dramatic response from the people of Israel? Well, it's because Moses had uh, led them for 40 years. He had been their prophet. He had been their leader. He presided over their court cases, and he provided family counseling when they needed it. Um, they knew Moses. They, they loved Moses. They followed Moses. And so when he died, uh, their sadness was understandable. You know, there was also some fear that came with their sadness because uh, Moses was the man of God. He's the man that God had appointed to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And now Moses was dead. And the people weren't in the promised land yet. And the question again was, had God failed? This was one of the questions that Israel faced and asked themselves at this moment in history. And that's why the way the book of Joshua begins is so significant. Because God, we see in the opening verses, God acknowledges Moses' death, and he also at the same time commissions Joshua to continue where Moses left off. Notice verses 1 through 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Did you hear that commission that God gave to Joshua, this charge to Joshua? God will emphasize that Joshua again as the new leader of Israel in verse 5, where he says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And as we uh, think about Joshua's commissioning by the Lord, uh, you know, we're reminded about the fact that so often our hearts and, and our hopes are tied to people uh, rather than to God himself. In church history, when very influential church leaders die, or when uh, they fail, uh, sometimes moral failings. And people have been led to, to doubt the future of the church, to doubt the future of, of the Gospels, we might say, success. And that's what happens when our hopes are tied to people. But in this passage, God reminds us that he is the divine author of history. He shows us that he will accomplish his will. He assures us of his faithfulness. Loved ones, we see this uh, throughout 
church history. God raised up great men and women to lead and, and to guide his church in every age. You know, at the end of the first century that we learned about in Sunday school this morning, at the end of the first century, all of the apostles were dead. And the question was, uh, who would lead? Would the, church, would the church cease to exist because the apostles were gone? Well, no, we see in church history that God had raised up new pastors uh, to lead his church. And the same thing happened at the, uh, when many of the reformers uh, died and through that period of transition. The question was, who would continue to lead this reform movement in Christ's church? Well, we know from church history that God raised up Protestant pastors to continue the work. See, loved ones, God is faithful to provide his church with uh, leadership and with guidance because ultimately it comes from him as he works through uh, men and women. Uh, Calvin writes, while men are cut off by death and while they fail in the middle of their careers, the faithfulness of God never fails. When Moses died, a sad change seemed impending. People were left like a body with its lead head lopped off. While thus in danger of dispersion, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, but it was shown in the person of Joshua as a bright mirror. We learn here that when God takes away those whom he has blessed with special gifts, he has others in readiness to take their place. Though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them. But God is able, as seems good to him, to find fit successors, uh, even to raise up from the very stones persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. And you know, that's what we see in this transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua. Both of these men were great men, but they were sinful men. They were uh, fallen. They were imperfect. That's why the attention here is on God himself and, and on his faithfulness from generation to generation, ultimately to fulfill his promise. Loved ones, God is faithful because God is always true to his word. We see the promise as he uh, states it here, speaking to Joshua in verses 3 through 4. Listen to the assurance that he gives Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Did you notice that phrase, just as I promised Moses? It's a significant phrase, right? Because it recalls Exodus chapter 3 and the promise that God made that he would bring Israel to Canaan. Right? Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses had not yet been called by God. He was just a shepherd. He was a fugitive hiding out from Pharaoh. And he was far away from, from Egypt. But there in Exodus 3, we read about how God came to Moses and spoke to him out of the burning bush. And God said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promise that God is repeating to Joshua in our sermon passage this morning. God is saying, you know, I, I promised Moses that I would bring my people into Canaan, and I'm going to keep that promise. And this morning, we know that that promise goes back even before Moses. It predates Moses, doesn't it, loved ones? Because that promise is rooted in God's covenant with Abraham, that covenant that we read about this morning. In Abraham's lifetime, there were several occasions where God promised that he would bless Abraham with a big family and with land, with many descendants and with a broad place for his descendants to multiply and uh, to rest. We read the first promise given in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, where God says, now uh, he said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed God first gives Abraham the promise of a big family and of land and then it's repeated in Genesis 13 beginning of verse 14 the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then these promises are repeated again in Genesis 15, the passage that we read for our second reading this morning. But as we saw in Genesis 15, God not only repeated his promise, but he sealed that covenant with blood. Friends, we see throughout these passages, we see God's faithfulness. He keeps his word, something that we confess every Sunday, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but his word endures forever. It remains true. It remains sure. And I want to ask you, do you believe that this morning? Are you uh, believing it in such a way that you are building your life upon God's word? You see, on every page of, of this book, of the Bible, God's record of faithfulness, loved ones. And so there is uh, no greater book on this earth on which you should base your life and I should base my life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been 
founded on the rock. God assures us of his faithfulness. Secondly, we see that he reminds us of his presence in verse 5. God says to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. As we consider this verse, we need to remember that a God is calling Joshua to do something very specific, but also uh, very frightening. God is, is calling Joshua to lead millions of people into Canaan, into the promised land. But the difficulty at this moment in history was that the land was inhabited. It wasn't vacant. It wasn't barren. There were people living there. And we know from the Bible that they were very dangerous people. We actually know that also from uh, many historical sources outside of the Bible. They were very dangerous people. They were warrior-like people. And so in order for Israel to be able to inhabit the land, Joshua and the people would have to conquer the land first. And, you know, we might ask ourselves this morning, uh, was it fair? Was it fair for God to command Israel to take this land away from the Canaanites? And uh, the answer to that, of course, is yes, it was fair because God is fair. God is perfectly just. Uh, But, you know, we might understand this better if we think about it as God's judgment against the Canaanites. Uh, This is something that we'll be talking about throughout our study in the book of Joshua. But in essence, what we need to understand, loved ones, is that God was judging the Canaanites for their sin. Um, They were a people that regularly practiced child sacrifice and idolatrous worship, and and God was bound to use Israel as a means of judgment upon these people. That's what's important for us to to consider as we we hear what God is calling Joshua and Israel to do in this uh, first chapter. And that's why God's word of assurance to Joshua in this very fearful, perhaps uncertain time for Israel That's why God's word of assurance is so, we might say, assuring to the people, right? God says to Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Words there for leave and forsake, they have the idea of abandonment. God here promises never to abandon his people. He will never fail them by leaving them. Loved ones, what is is God promising here? He's saying, Joshua, you know, when you and Israel are on the battlefield against the Canaanites and you will have many battles to fight, I will be right there with you fighting for you. As we know, in the battle of Jericho, God actually uh, fought that battle for his people. And Joshua, uh, no matter how difficult things might get or how impossible this situation might seem for you and for Israel, I will never abandon you. And this commitment, this commitment from God and this assurance of his presence, you know what, it was, it was meant to embolden and to encourage Joshua and the Israelites. 
Because if we look in our text, right after God says this to Joshua, he follows it up with the exhortation in verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You see, loved ones, the, the connection that is made between God's commitment and our confidence. God's commitment is meant to give us confidence. We see this same idea play out in human relationships, especially in marriage. I remember that in a class at uh, Vanguard University, my professor asked, uh, what is the main factor in a lasting marriage? And uh, people started giving their answers. Uh, love, success, children, finances, uh, happiness. And, and my professor said, you know, those are all factors, uh, but none of them are the main one. And uh, I, I raised my hand. I was in the back of the room, and I said, commitment. And my professor said, yes, that's the main factor. And I remember all the girls in the class turned around to see who had said that. Um, <laughs> You know, the motto on campus was, get your ring by senior spring. So they were all, you know, who said that, right? Uh, it's commitment. Uh, when a man and, and a woman, we know, when they, when they make marriage vows uh, to each other, the vows that they pronounce before witnesses and before a minister and before God, the, the, the commitment is, yes, I promise in the presence of God and in the presence of these witnesses to be a loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, to love you and to honor and to cherish you uh, so long as we both shall live. You hear the words of, of commitment there. You know, these vows that, that uh, couples uh, say in, in a marriage ceremony, what they echo is the way that God speaks to us. The way God speaks to here in Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you, even if things get very difficult. And sometimes I want to ask you this morning, uh, what does this kind of commitment produce in marriage? You know what it produces? It produces joy. Right? It produces peace and courage and strength in both the husband and, and the wife. Because a marriage that is not based on commitment is a marriage that is based on what? It's based on performance. It's based on, you know, I will be with you as long as you satisfy my needs. I will be with you for as long as you make me happy. I will not abandon you until I find someone that I think I love more. We know that a marriage that is based on performance, what does that produce? It produces fear, anxiety, and distrust. And that's what God wants Joshua to understand. His relationship with his people is not based on performance, but it's based on commitment. It's based on the covenant that he made and, and the assurance that he gives that he will never forsake or abandon his people. Now, you know, as we think about how this applies to us, 
unlike Israel, we are not facing warfare with the Canaanites. Um, but we are called, loved ones, by God, we're called in this world to put on our spiritual armor and to fight the good fight of the faith. We're called to stand strong against Satan's attacks and against the temptations to sin that arise from our own sinful desires. And when we're called to spread the gospel to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, and, and to the world. And we need to understand that in this calling, loved ones, God is with us every step of the way. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. You might remember last week when I mentioned the disciples' fear at Jesus' departure when he told them that he was going to die and to rise again and that he would then ascend to the Father. We know that the disciples didn't like that plan. Um, but Jesus assured them in John chapter 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Friends, uh, Christ has sent his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so we are never abandoned or forsaken. So let us be strong and courageous, knowing that God is always with us by his Spirit. Thirdly, we see in our text that God calls us to obedience in verses 6 through 9. God calls us to obedience. Uh, notice in, in these verses that Joshua is commanded to know God's word. And then he's commanded to live in obedience to it. And the result of doing this, God says, will be good success. We see that we need to know God's word as well. The instruction there in verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. The importance of knowing God's word is that it teaches us about what pleases God and about the way in which God calls us to live in this world, to live in a way that, that glorifies him and that pleases him. And so as his people, if we want to know God, we have to know his word. It's his revelation of himself. Psalm chapter 1 Verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. We see the importance of knowing God's word, and as we said, building our lives upon it. And that is revealed in our obedience, in our obedience to his word. And we know from what the Lord Jesus emphasized, it needs to be obedience that comes from the heart, not merely externally for show. And when we think about what God was calling Joshua and Israel to do at this time and living in obedience to him, God had a very specific purpose in commanding Israel to live according to his revealed will. Because God's intention was that 
Israel would be a, a covenant community of people who would shine his light among the pagan and sinful cultures around Israel. Now, before he gave Israel the Ten Commandments, God said to them in Exodus chapter 19, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God saying that Israel would be a kingdom of priests. You know, priests are a go-between, right? They're mediators between God and people. And the idea was that as Israel trusted God and, and as Israel obeyed God's word, they would stand out as a peculiar people among the pagan nations around them. The other nations would see Israel as different and they would be attracted to the nation and therefore they'd be attracted to God himself. You know, as, as Christians today, the Lord Jesus gives us the same command. The church in the new covenant, he says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, God is impressing upon Joshua and Israel. The Lord Jesus is impressing upon us is that we're actually to stick out like a sore thumb in this world. Um, that our views on morality should not be the same as the world's. Our views on sexuality, our views on when life begins, that the, the arguments for abortion that we hear today from those who do not believe in God, our views on, on life, on sexuality, on, on the purpose of uh, why we are here, right? all of these things should be in direct contrast with the world. The world should think us strange because of how different we are to uh, what the world teaches. We are, loved ones, to let our light shine. And when we do that, God is uh, glorified as he shows us in his word. And the promise to Joshua, as we see, is there in verse 8, then, Joshua, and when you know my word, and when you live in obedience to it, then you will have good success. You will have good success. Now, you know, that word success is loaded, isn't it? Um, I remember every year in our school yearbooks, there was always that category, right? Most likely to succeed. And what was that category uh, getting at? Um, how was success defined by those who were nominating people to that category? Uh, it was defined by riches. Your success one day might be defined by your riches, perhaps by the honor that you receive in the world's eyes. Lord, that's, not, that's not the way that God uh, defines success. Uh, God defines success here according to faithfulness. God says that true success 
in this life is found in faithfulness to what he tells us in his word. It means to live in such a way that we, on the last day, we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, because we have lived according to what God has revealed in his word. Paul, at the end of his life, we think about how he spent the last few moments of his life in a dirty prison cell, therefore preaching the gospel. And by the world standards, the Apostle Paul would not have been considered a success. And yet, loved ones, in God's eyes, Paul's success was evident in his faithfulness. As Paul himself said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And this call to faithfulness, loved ones, on our part is based on God's commitment to us. We know that our relationship with him is not based on our performance because we are united to Christ, the Christ who was perfectly obedient, the Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly and who has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have declared that while the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word endures forever. And so we pray that you would write your word on our hearts. Grant that the word that we have heard preached this day will not be snatched away by the evil one, nor fall on hard, unrepentant hearts, nor be choked by the cares and the worries of this life. But instead, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we may truly profit from the word as it has been preached, that we would grow in grace. Grant us, we pray, to bear fruit for your kingdom, 30, 60, 90, even 100-fold. Hear us as we pray to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.